0: Hey everyone, I'm Nate Vineo, and this is Something to Gnaw on. A short podcast for those with short attention span, or just short on time. Designed to give you something to mentally and spiritually chew on throughout your day. Bible study in bite-sized form, if you will. And occasionally, it may look a bit like my journal. This episode is, Wait Till Your Dad Gets Home. Given my age and current shifts in culture... I find myself thinking, and occasionally saying out loud, the iconic phrase, when I was a kid, I have four children. For now, let's just stick with their ages, 25, 22, 12, and 5. This is my way of diversifying my retirement portfolio, assuming I do a stellar job raising productive members of a society. All kidding aside, though, these are three different and equally gifted kiddos. I think it just might be a little bit early to start making projections regarding the five-year-old. Something triggered a memory the other day. The memory included the thought, when I was a kid, you learned even though you could run away from your parent or authority figure, the discipline would intensify. That it was better to face the consequences of your actions or your inactions than to try to dodge them. I thoroughly understand the principle, but I certainly missed the mark of employing it. My dad once relayed a childhood story where he behaved in such a way that my grandma sent him to his room. I think she needed to take a few moments to pray, calm down, and apply the proper amount of discipline. At the same time, my dad, awaiting his impending judgment, is working on his plan to mitigate the discipline. How do you lessen the impact of a spanking? His solution was simple, get a book. I'm not privy to the lecture grandma delivered, but it was punctuated with a spanking. And in those days, young boys wore pants that were baggy or baggy enough to contain a small book to cover their backside without being too obvious. And dad succeeded in lessening the impact of the spanking but Grandma wasly really hurt when her hand hit the book. I can imagine her muttering on the way out the door, "Just wait until your father gets home." Another phrase that's etched in my memory from my childhood: "Just wait till your father gets home." That was a mom's nuclear option. If she wasn't getting through to the kiddo, then boom, just wait till your father gets home. And Grandma used the nuclear option that day. As I understand it, Grandpa got home later that day. And let's just say that the lessening of the impact with Grandma was more than compensated for by Grandpa. On another occasion, Dad knew Grandpa was coming home, so he hid under the stove, hanging on to the rear legs as Grandpa tried to pull him out. Surely there's a Norman Rockwell painting out there somewhere of this event. A father with a fuming red face yanking on the feet of a determined little kid who's white-knuckling the back leg of the stove. Meanwhile, Grandma stands off to the side with her arms folded, but one is partially covering her face, leaving the observer to wonder, is she laughing or crying? And off to the side of the stove lies the book that took this situation from bad to worse. Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Or maybe this was the inspiration for such a book. At any rate, let's just say it did not end well for my dad that day. It was the same for me. Whether at home, at school, or at any other serious sporting endeavor, attempting to lessen or minimize or completely dodge the impact of discipline only made it worse. I see it in my children. It's really a human struggle. Nobody likes discipline. And let's be clear here. I'm not referring to discipline as an equal term to training, as in an athlete disciplines or trains themselves for competition. That is tough work for sure, and it has impact, but it's self-generated. And that's not what I'm talking about here. At the same time, I'm not talking about punishment either. I'm referring to discipline in the narrow term of being corrected. I've enjoyed training my children. I've loved every minute of clean slate teaching that I've had with them. Whether it was basketball or fishing or camping or hiking, I've cherished those moments. On more serious matters like manners, respect, work ethic, or teaching Bible stories and their application to everyday life or building their faith in Christ, those are the absolute best. But that is training. That's educating. That's mentoring. Discipline comes when that blue-eyed child does something wrong, and you have to step up as a parent, the responsible one for proper growth and development of this child, and say, We need to get this behavior corrected now. There's a direct correlation between the motive and successful correction. For example, an honest mistake might have an amicable response from the child. Oh, I didn't see that. I'll do as you suggest in the future. Thanks for the correction, parental unit. If only it were all that easy. And if only it were all that simple. When it comes to actions, though, that are born out of stubborn, selfish pride, their corrective game gets ramped up a level or five. Stubborn, selfish pride is at the core of the human being and does not accept correction well. To be corrected means that wrong has been committed, and to be corrected means that a stubborn, selfish, prideful person will have to admit that they were wrong. It is easier to acknowledge that someone else is right than to offer the same acknowledgement with the subtle twist of, I was wrong, and to do so without sarcasm or mitigating conditions like, I'm sorry, if. Frankly, it's easy to see in children. At the same time, it's no less present in adults. It's just a bit more camouflaged. There was an old sitcom called Mad About You, and I've searched high and low for the episode clip on the internet with no luck, and I refused to buy the entire series to find it, but the episode captures this stubborn, selfish pride so incredibly well in one episode. After having an argument where Paul Reiser's character factually wins the argument, he then tries to extract the phrase, I was wrong, from Helen Hunt. At the same time, Helen Hunt masterfully dodges responsibility in a myriad of ways by saying, You were right. I'll do better next time. I'm glad we resolved this. Can we move on now? She says, Everything except I was wrong. When you read through the book of Ezra, chapter 10, you come to a wild episode of discipline and correction, on a massive scale, in fact, not on a personal level but on a national scale. Ezra arrives in Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity, only to find that the Israelites had been intermarrying with neighboring countries, and most problematically, the priests and the Levites were setting the sinful example, a major violation. We're talking class A felony type sin. For the Israelites in Jerusalem, the waiting for their father to get home is over. Ezra is no wilting flower. He's up for the challenge. And honestly, he's probably more fearful of God than he is of man. He's more concerned of what God thinks of him and the situation than what his fellow Israelites think of him. You might say he's had a shoestring snot revival. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, check out that episode. It'll make things make a whole lot more sense here. So Ezra steps up to the plate, and the confrontation And the correction began. Ezra 10, verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. Move on here to verse 10 through 12. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. So then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. And isn't that what real confession is? We're confronted with our own behavior. It doesn't align with truth, so we confess. It is so. I was wrong. I did wrong. I behaved badly. I hurt you, or some form thereof. Apologize without excuse, without justification or explanation. I see where I was wrong. I see that I hurt you. I see that my actions were bad. I'm sorry I hurt you. I'm sorry for the pain I've brought into our relationship. Lord, what else must I do to make it right? Please forgive me. God, please restore us. This episode in Ezra's ministry is painful. It isn't just a simple, I'm sorry. Okay, good talk, guys. Now what's for lunch? Hey, let's take the kids out to Chuck E. Cheese for lunch. No, there's much more pain, much repenting, much correction read ezra and nehemiah and you'll see a setting where this dynamic of correction happens again and again and it's not on a shallow level it's deep and it's tough but it's absolutely necessary on a personal level we must be willing to be corrected to confess our sin not just when we give our lives to jesus but every time we miss the mark It needs to be a knee-jerk habit when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit that we confess immediately. No more excuses, justification or rationalization, or any other delay tactic. Just own it, confess it, and do what's right and biblical and move forward. Think about the impact of the following verses. Proverbs 28.13 says, "...whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper." But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy." First John 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And lastly, consider this statement in Paul's sermon to the Athenians in Acts 17, verses 30-31. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he appointed. Almost sounds like he's saying, just wait till your dad comes home. That date's been set already. Can I step out on a limb here and say that we shouldn't wait until your dad gets home spiritually to get things right? Frankly, we live in a state of grace right now where we can humble ourselves, confess our sins, and proclaim Jesus as Lord and repent from our lives of sin. And I kind of joked about the idea at the beginning of the podcast, but it's no joke when it comes to our eternity. And make no mistake about it, you have the opportunity to set things right right now. You will meet Jesus in one of two ways, when you die or if you're alive when he returns. Either way, the simple question is, will you be ready? Will meeting Jesus be a happy occasion that leads to an eternity with him in heaven, or will it be a sad occasion that results in eternity in hell? I realize this is a blunt and disconcerting for some. Some may even call it insensitive, call it not woke or politically incorrect. But let me ask you, which is more loving? To proclaim truth that brings life, although it's uncomfortable? and painful, or to ignore the truth, numbing the pain of reality, and letting your neighbor run headlong down the highway to hell without so much as a speed bump to slow him down. But in the same way that a doctor would give a patient painful truth so he can save them, I unashamedly proclaim that we must humble ourselves, accept and confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and repent and be made right with God. If you need to get right with God right now, pray with me. And rewind the podcast if you need to, but pray this prayer right now and know that God hears you. Heavenly Father, I know you love me, and I confess that I'm a sinner. Thank you for sending your Son to die on the cross to pay the price for my sin. And I accept you into my life and ask that you would help me to repent. And please give me a new heart and a new mind and a new life. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Second Corinthians says that this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. And the old life is gone, the new life has begun. And if you just prayed that prayer, you are a new creation. And you don't have to worry. About meeting Jesus. To wrap up this episode, I would say this. We have to develop a positive, knee jerk reaction to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that is, confession and agreement, not excuse and justification. It began when we first submitted our lives to Him, but it doesn't end there. Well, at least that's what I learned when I was a kid. Don't wait. Until your father gets home. I'm Nate Vineo, and this has been Something to Gnaw on. You can find me on Facebook by searching Something to Gnaw on. That page will have links to the podcast, other random posts, notifications about the podcast, and is the most centralized source for info regarding the podcast. Lastly, if ever there was an episode to share, this may very well be it. If this or any other episode has been a blessing to you or you know someone who could really use this presentation of the gospel today, please share on your social media pages and help me get the word out. Until next week, God bless.